0: Titus chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching, which was committed to me according to the commandment of God our Savior. Titus, a true son in our common faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. For this reason, I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Let's pray. Lord, we ask that you would open our ears to understand this word. We thank you that Titus and Paul lived it and that their example is written for our Uh, betterment here this day that we can continue to build churches uh, in this earth as you've designed. We give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. I have a question to ask of the young people before I get started. And so let me be as kind of precise. I'm looking for someone under 10, still in the single digit ages, that knows and has memorized the books of the New Testament. Anybody anybody done that? Just willing to raise their hand before God and everybody in this room? No, no, no. We got one. There you go. Titus, are you, are you willing to come up here? How appropriate that Titus is the one that raised his hand. Are you willing to come up here, Titus? Come here, buddy. Go ahead. You can go ahead and say it. I'll be praying for you while you're singing. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, 2nd Samuel, King, 1 Kings, 2nd Kings, 1 Chronicles, 2nd Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Songs of Songs, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah, Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Zechariah. Malachi, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st Corinthians, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, 1st Thessalonians, 2nd Thessalonians, 1st Timothy, 2nd Timothy, Titus, Philemon, Hebrews, James, 1st Peter, 2nd Peter, 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John, Jude, Revelation. Excellent. Wow. Did I ask the New Testament books? Yeah, he gave it all. That's wonderful. Thank you, Titus. OK, now. What I wanted to ask then too, is of the New Testament books, uh, which were written by Paul? <coughs> How many of the New Testament books were written by Paul? This is a question for anybody. 13. And so does anybody know they run in a contiguous segment? Anybody know where they start? The Romans and where do they end? Philemon at the letter of Philemon now too, there's dispute over uh, Hebrews, but we know that these 13 were written by Paul and Only only people who are uh, tend to be very liberal tend to criticize that and and say anybody else might have written those but uh, They're all in order there from Romans to Philemon he wrote many of them to churches, but he wrote several of them to individuals He wrote the bulk of the letters. There were another eight, and again, Titus listed them for us. We know that John wrote three, Peter wrote two, uh, James wrote one, Jude wrote one, and then Hebrews. Uh, I know Phil thinks Luke wrote it, and uh, I know others think Paul wrote it. Some think somebody that we don't even know wrote it. Who knows? But uh, I'll go with Luke. Okay, now, the reason I bring this up is that um, Titus was written as one of the letters to an individual. When you read Paul's letters that were written to churches, the bulk of them have a certain format, and it's fairly straightforward. And all of his letters obviously begin with a salutation, a greeting. Uh, But then in his letters like to Ephesians, to Philippians, Colossians, they begin very broadly with some, some theological truths that are just beautiful. And then they tend to gravitate towards application. Okay, now that I've gotten you up into the heavenlies, I'm going to have you work for the Lord. And then he gives, uh, again, greetings and salutations at the end, usually saying, please say hi to this 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 person and commend them. So now this one though, I would say, is a little bit different. And so uh, at this time, this is the, uh, one of the last books written and Paul probably only wrote uh, 2 Timothy after this. He wrote 1 Timothy and Titus about the same time, so he's writing to these two men who have been serving him faithfully for decades now, and he's giving Titus instructions. So when this came up, the opportunity to do this, and I looked at it, I thought, wow, this just kind of pops out at you, at least it did with me, that there's a theme here, and I'll kind of get to it in in a couple minutes. But first, I want to talk about the background just of the book, and I'm going to get into why and how I chose it. So he's, Paul has returned to Crete, and he says, when I left you, so Paul was on Crete. Now, none of his three missionary journeys did he visit Crete, but when he was taken from Jerusalem to Rome, he visited Crete. And as a matter of fact, it was from Fairhaven, this port that they had departed, and they had hoped to just land on the other side of Crete, but they were entering into a bad storm, and then they got blown off course, and they went like 200 miles or more to Malta, maybe even farther than that, I forget exactly how far it is. But they were lost at sea for weeks in that storm, and it's because they had failed to stick close to Crete and land at this further uh, port on the western coast. So, Did they have the opportunity though then to plant churches? It's doubtful, I mean, he was just there for a couple days and he was a prisoner of this Roman guard. So later though, there is perhaps this other opportunity that we'll get to. And that is when after the whole book of Acts has been written, and so you're now up to Acts 28 and you, you read about Paul being imprisoned in Rome, Paul went on to escape that imprisonment, be released from that imprisonment, And that's when we think he went to Crete. So now Rome is up here. Crete is over here further to the west. So he he came over to Crete and then he leaves Titus there. So it would seem logical then that this is when when he had founded these churches or maybe they were there already. We'll cover a little bit more of that later. After he leaves Crete though, he wants to leave. It's theorized that Paul then spent two to three years going over to Spain, perhaps even going to uh, what's now Great Britain, and then returning to Rome and eventually losing his life under Nero. So that's a little bit of this book. It's written at the very tail end, just after he's gotten away from uh, the prison in Rome. Now, who is Titus? Titus is referred to in the Bible a few times. Uh, The earliest mention of him is in Galatians 2. And I'll go ahead and uh, flip to that and read it in Galatians 2 Paul says then after 14 years I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me and I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preach among the Gentiles but privately to those who were of reputation lest by any means I might run or had run in vain yet not even Titus who was with me being a Greek was compelled to be circumcised so here we learn just a little bit about Titus that he's Greek that in this dispute over whether Greeks should adopt Judaism, Paul won out. He did not have Titus circumcised. Whereas later with Timothy, because Timothy's mom was a Jewess, he did have Timothy circumcised such that he could minister with him in Jewish communities that wouldn't have tolerated a, a Titus or an uncircumcised man. So now the second occurrence, that was around 49 A.D., That was right after Paul had returned from his first missionary journey. And some say that Titus that Paul had originally met Titus because he was a translator for Paul. I I just don't know that well enough to know whether that's true or not. But we know, though, that he went on to serve Paul for many, many years. We next hear of Titus in connection with 2 Corinthians. And he's mentioned many times in 2 Corinthians in chapters 2, 7, 8 and 12. And so we know that he ministered in Corinth quite a bit with Paul and for Paul. It's thought that he may have brought both letters to the Corinthians. And we know that he was instrumental in helping to uh, manage that difficult church. And the people of Corinth liked Titus. So that was about eight years later. That was during the tail end of Paul's uh, third missionary journey. So now then we have this letter. After this time, he had been returned to Jerusalem, been arrested, spent time in Caesarea, went to Rome. Now he's out and he's returned. And this letter is written to Titus after Paul has left him behind in Crete. And then the last reference is in the last book Paul wrote, 2 Timothy. And he refers to uh, Titus, he essentially refers to him as having left Crete and gone somewhere else. Now, Paul at this point that he writes uh, this is most likely in Nicopolis. He references it in Titus 3.12. He tells Titus to come to him. But we're not sure. He may be planning to meet Titus there. We just don't know. And Nicopolis is, if you're familiar, here's Italy, and then here's Greece, and here's Turkey, and then here's uh, Israel. And so Nicopolis is over here along the coast, uh, up to the northwest of Greece, along what is today like Kosovo, or Albania, it used to be Yugoslavia and it kind of faces Italy. So, he's spending time here. And it's not that far actually from Athens or Corinth. They're only like maybe 100 150 miles to the southeast. So, now that's who Titus is. So, we talked about the book of Titus, who Titus is. I want to talk a little bit about this island of Crete. Has anybody ever who's here been to Crete? Has there anybody ever been on the island of Crete? Yep. I thought, uh, I thought the Tyler's had been. Do any of you kids remember having been on Crete? Were they not there? Oh, they weren't there. You wouldn't remember, but your mom knows, and it's uh, supposed to be a beautiful place, A beautiful place, very mountainous. I mean, even though it's at sea level in the Mediterranean Sea, there are mountains 8,000 feet high on this island. It's about 150 miles long, and at its widest point uh, north to south, it's about 37 miles. If you were to compare it to something in the United States. If you're familiar with the little states over in the Northeast, when you leave New York, you go into Connecticut. And I know Gary's been to Connecticut a few times now. When you go into Connecticut, Connecticut's kind of like a rectangle. And then you have another smaller rectangle next to it. That's Rhode Island. And then you have chunks of Massachusetts that wrap around Rhode Island. If you were to take Connecticut, Rhode Island, and that part of Massachusetts and cut it in half, Take that lower half, that would be about the size and the square miles of this island of Crete in the middle of the Mediterranean. So if you're not familiar with the New England states, though, that doesn't help you a whole lot. But it's not that big. I'm just saying it's not that big, 150 miles. Like here, just to the other side of Des Moines, right? That's kind of the length of this island we're talking about. So Crete was the site of a very famous civilization long, long prior to the time of Christ. Back from like 3 to 2,000 B.C., it was the Minoan civilization. And there are ruins on that island of that civilization, various palaces that had had been built all over this island. But by the time Rome conquered it in 63 B.C., it had fallen very far from that uh, past. So for several hundred years, they were among the uh, most uh, intense basis for pirates throughout the Mediterranean and it's part of the reason that Rome later conquered them because Rome was attempting to pacify make law where there was no law and the pirates of Crete and other islands kind of had the run of the Mediterranean so Rome conquered them now the question is when did these churches get here and there are really three uh, options reasonable options Uh, the first is that when all the people were gathered in Jerusalem at Pentecost, and all these people heard the gospel being spoken in their native tongue, uh, there were people there from Crete. So these people, if they came to faith at that point, they then returned to Crete. And they have now, in part, turned uh, Judaism upside down on that island because Christianity tends to do that with Judaism. That's why the Jewish leaders didn't like Christianity because it turned their religion upside down. This, by this time, by the time Paul is leaving Titus there and going off, that's been 30 years now. So it's been a long time, but it's been long enough that if that is when the churches were founded and if they didn't really have solid Bible teaching all this time, a lot of odd things could have developed in the churches there. So that's the first theory and probably the strongest. The other is when he was on out to Rome. That seems very unrealistic because he was only there a few days while they were supplying the ship and stuff. Uh, and the other would be when he's on his way from Rome. In other words, after he's left Rome that first time as a prisoner and now he's just established these churches. That's also a possibility. So these churches are brand new. He's just been evangelizing across the island and now he's leaving Titus behind because he has other things to do. You know what they say, places to go, people to see. So Titus was instructed to do a couple of things, and one of them was to appoint elders in every city. So Crete had many cities sprinkled throughout it. Even at this time, it most likely had up to 100 cities over this vast island, and chief cities were known as uh, Knossos, Kedonia. I'm probably really badly pronouncing these. Kedonia, Gortina, and Lytus, or Lictus, And uh, Gortina alone was said to be over 200,000 people. So some of these cities were big. They were very populated uh, cities. So now that's the book and it's Titus and Crete. And now I wanna talk a little bit about why I chose this. And there is a theme that I'm going to introduce. Um, A couple of weeks ago, I got an email and I happened to be up in the middle of the night. And so I got, I saw this email and it was Phil And his schedule in June and July is very, very crazy, kind of busy. And so uh, he said, I could use someone to fill in for me here and here. So I looked at it, and I thought, well, it would be kind of nice if there was a series that could fit in this range. And then I ended up finding Titus, and it fit perfectly into this spot. And so now i know one of the weeks that phil would appreciate that was this past week because he went off fishing with gill and caught like a walleye that's you know uh, big as a door and uh, then he has another fishing trip coming up in minnesota at the end of june and i'm beginning to suspect that the trip to california is really a cover for another fishing trip (laughs) Uh, ben just happens to be getting married i think out there at the same time but so this worked out really well though and the book of titus laid out perfectly for this but as i was reading i shot gary a note and I said, what do we want to do? And then about an hour and a half later, I shot him another note. And I said, I, I propose we do this. Uh, so I felt that Titus was Paul as a general writing to like a colonel that he's left behind in order to accomplish this work that is very important. And it's on his heart. But when I read through that several times, it just has this constant theme. It reminded me of like a military conquest. And let me give you uh, some of the reasons for this. First, the first theme that you really see is that he's establishing communication, leadership, and discipline within this realm that he's assigned Titus responsibility for. That's typically what you do in a military uh, uh, encounter. You need to establish communication, you need to get the leadership in place, and you need to have disciplined troops. Second is you need to then train and motivate the troops if they're not already trained and motivated, and I think that came next in chapter two. And then in chapter three, it's all about maintaining that discipline and then also maintaining that communication that you've established at the beginning. So to me, it just looked like a military uh, maneuver. When I broke it down further, I broke it down into these. And so today's message, you know, from the bulletin is following orders, and it's only the first five verses. But then next is choosing lieutenants, next is establishing discipline, fourth, is training the troops, five is honoring heroes, and so we'll get into that when we talk about that in a few weeks, but uh, a military tends to educate its force on heroes. It's not that you want to worship them in the the, uh, religious sense, but you certainly want to know about them such that you can live up to their example. And then sixth is maintaining morale, and seventh is communicating plans, continuing and, open, and opening those lines of communication. So those are the uh, seven-fold breakdown of the book and the series. So let's get into the text. We haven't even talked about what I'd read thus far. So Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Uh, bondservant here is the word doulos. It's the Greek word for slave. And you really can't just read right past this. Especially the apostles and especially Paul uh, did regard himself as a slave. There is a portion in Exodus that I'd like to read from Exodus 21. Now, these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh year, he shall go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. So this slave who had been given a wife has to leave her and his family behind. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free. Then his master shall bring him to the judges he shall also bring him to the door or to the doorpost and his matter shall his master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever so this was something that a male slave would do if they did not want to leave that master they could have many reasons it could be that he has a wife and children it could be just that he doesn't want to go out into the world to make it on his own he wants to be this man and loyal to this man who he values, who this text says he loves. So Paul is in a very real sense that type of servant to God. He's sold out to the Lord completely. We all speak of that, but until we've lived uh, Paul's life, I don't know that we can kind of say we earned the spurs of declaring ourselves sold out to God in that way. But Paul certainly had. In Acts, and then in Corinthians, we see that he recites what he's been through. But we know when he wrote Corinthians, that was like at the tail end of his third missionary journey. He had 10 more years of imprisonment, of of travel, evangelizing. So he faced even more opposition. And then in the end, we know he was most likely beheaded by Nero in Rome. So he did uh, pour himself out as an offering to the Lord. He regarded himself as a slave. And he lived like a slave for the lord because he loved him and then he says an apostle of jesus christ apostolos and so he was as an apostle a very very select messenger of god the apostles were in this interim between the collapse of judaism and the rise of christianity and they served this purpose of building that foundation upon that foundation which was christ and they he was the cornerstone and they laid the foundation. And then the church ever since that has been building on what the apostles did. And I know that there are people now that call themselves apostles. We all know that. But they are really taking something upon themselves. That they have no right to do. And scripturally, they have no warrant for that. According to the faith of God's elect. That's the next phrase. Paul, a bondservant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledgement of the truth, which accords with godliness. According to the faith of God's elect, as I read this, and that's in the New King James, and as I read this, and I was trying to meditate on it, what does it mean? Um, One of the commentators said that this could be better. This could be, there could be a better translation of this. And so what I found in the ESV, now this is in the New King James, according to the faith of God's elect, this is what it is in the ESV for the sake of the faith of God's elect. So you can see that there's this more active uh, goal in mind. The NIV, I think says it really well, to further the faith of God's elect. So Paul's role is to further the faith of God's elect. The message even has a very, very good. One. Now see, when I, when I quote the Bible, I have it in purple and I don't have the message in purple. It's amplified, it's not really the Bible, it's kind of, it's, you know, it's amplification. But it says this, for promoting faith, for promoting faith among God's people. So again, this phrase, according to the faith of God's elect, is kind of a weak presentation of something that Paul is very actively pursuing. He is furthering the faith of God's elect by what he's doing. And then the last phrase, and the acknowledgement of the truth which accords with godliness. So he is addressing this right up front right in his uh, uh, greeting because that is what Titus is going to have to really work hard at on Crete Uh, this statement emphasizes that this is the true gospel and that he wants Titus to bring the true gospel to these people of Crete and he also emphasizes truth the truth which accords with godliness so whatever he was having Titus fight whatever uh, Native uh, variation of Judaism or even Christianity was present on the island had to be corrected. There were errors in it that were very serious and he was instructing Titus right in the intro that this is where you're going. You have to hammer home the truth of God's gospel such that it leads to proper godliness, not a counterfeit of godliness. So now Paul links godliness also here with the hope of eternal life elect and the acknowledgement of the truth which occurs with godliness in hope of eternal life which God who cannot lie promised before time began. We know that uh, Judaism even had been somewhat corrupted by Greek influence by this time. And so they had a low view of human flesh. They didn't want human flesh. They didn't value it. They felt it was beneath God to be dealing with all of this human flesh. But yet, obviously, Paul is fighting against that. In the hope of eternal life, which God who cannot lie promised before time began. In other words, this has been God's plan from the beginning, that you would have physical bodies and, an, and live with God in an eternal future. So this was important for him to emphasize. He refers to eternal life also at the end of the letter, to emphasize it again. And he links eternal life here and in chapter 3 with godliness and good works. Now, there's a problem, though, when you link eternal life with good works and what is it what is the problem we then think that that's how you get to enjoy eternal life by doing good works and so you're tending to mix up the cause and the effect which is kind of a common problem so now the phrase good work in this letter appears six times titus is not a big letter it's a very very short letter it has three chapters but each chapter is pretty short And yet, good works appears six times. And so, Paul knows that the Cretans are going to have difficulty achieving this properly. The proper aspect of good works. There's an improper aspect of good works where you're trying to earn salvation. But yet, the proper one, you have to get it just right. Because he wants the people to recognize that salvation is from their sin. Not that they can enjoy salvation with their sin or in addition to their sin. So he doesn't want them to be free from realizing that they must have good works. But the good works are an expected outcome of being saved, of knowing God, of pursuing righteousness and godliness. The, the good works don't earn you salvation, but they are a proper reflection. If you are saved, you ought to have them. And if you don't have them, you ought to be asking yourself why they, you don't have them. So they're an indicator of salvation, not a prerequisite for it. So then we have promised before time began. Promised before time began, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching. So he's linking time here. He points at eternity past before time began. God has this plan to draw good works out of all of his people. He's got these people now that are building these churches in Crete, yet they're a little off They need to have it corrected, but yet he wants to link them in time, but has in due time manifested his word through preaching. Now, remember when Paul was being brought before the crowd, and then he got the Pharisees and the Sadducees arguing with one another. What was it that he got them arguing about? It was about the hope of eternal life because the Sadducees denied a resurrection. They denied that there would be a future life. So now Paul knows that there is this future life and he's promised it and he wants to bring it in to the reality of this argument with Titus. So now Titus had already labored in Corinth quite a bit. So he's familiar with how the Corinthians viewed this, all of their things. And so in the letter uh, to Corinth, Paul had spoken of what? The foolishness of preaching. It's offensive to a preacher, perhaps, to speak of preaching as foolishness. But Paul calls it that. God calls it that. It is a means by which God has chosen to have his spirit work through the people of this world. It's not through the words that are coming out, really. That's why we are so uh, prone to rely upon reason, because that's who we are, especially Presbyterians. We just want to rely upon reason. But when you're dealing with the ungodly, when you're dealing with those that are in opposition to the Lord, it's not reason that's going to win them over. We use reason. But it's God's spirit that must work in our hearts in order to convict them of sin and draw them close to salvation to be saved. So then, though, once someone is saved, then we do tend to rely upon reason again to say this is what we ought to do. And again, Paul is great at reason. He could be a philosopher, He is a philosopher. And yet again, even in our growth as individuals, we must learn to rely upon the Lord. Because it isn't just reason. Reason can tell us right from wrong, yes. We can learn it from the word. It still doesn't make us want to be doing what's right, though. That power comes from God. That hunger to satisfy the Lord doesn't come through just reason alone. We have to want it, it has to be a heart thing, a matter of the will. And so that's what he's encouraging him to do—to draw out of these people and create. this This will be different for them. It's not what they're used to. You have to convince them that this is the right thing, and yet it has to be also a work of the Holy Spirit that's convicting them of sin. So then he goes on to say, in verse four, to Titus, a true son in our common faith. So he's known Titus for probably 20 years by now if not more. And yet he regards him as a son in, in the faith. Now, you have Timothy and Titus who have very, very similar experiences with Paul. Uh, he trusts them in the same way to minister on his behalf in these churches. It would appear that Titus probably had more labors in Corinth. Maybe Timothy had more labors in Ephesus. Uh, it's, it's hard to figure it all out, but yet based on what I've been reading, that uh, appears to be what happens But now paul has been entrusted with proclaiming the gospel message and he brings titus into that responsibility Uh, paul was great at using people not in a mean way or in a bad way but in a very good way of, of motivating them to serve the lord not just serve him But get their hearts directed towards the Lord. And he was a very demanding person. He required everything of you. He gave it all himself. He required it of you. And this is not something that we should think unusual. Christ himself said those very same things. So Paul was only being obedient to Christ in giving everything in the service to the faith. Now, it's possible, based on just the reading, some people theorize that Titus was perhaps a little older than Timothy. And so Timothy fit kind of more into the mold of potentially being of age to where he could have been uh, Paul's son. And maybe Titus was a little older. I don't know. But anyway, they are both well-treated by Paul and and, uh, valued uh, by Paul. So now the last uh, verse here, the one that we're going to talk more about. For this reason I left you in Crete that you should set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you." Now, he's already told Titus what he wanted. So why the need of the letter? I mean, he was just with Titus. Why does he need to clarify this? Um, Personally, I have come to rely upon the written letter and direction a lot more than I had to before. Um, It's really easy for me nowadays to forget things or to misunderstand things oversimplify things and so it would seem that what Paul wants mainly is to make sure that Titus understands the scope of what it is that he's requiring of him and Time has passed time will continue to pass the possibility exists that Titus could not do it The way Paul would want it done and Paul is giving him clear instruction how he wants it done So let me see. Set in order the things that are lacking and appoint elders in every city. It sounds pretty straightforward. How could you forget that? But then, of course, he goes on to give a lot more detail in these. And now appointing elders in each of the cities could be, in a sense, the first most important example of setting things in order that need to be set in order. And so appointing the elders is just one of the things of satisfying that lack that now exists in the churches in Crete. Set in order the things that are lacking. Now, later, and we'll go into this in more detail later, but uh he really slams the people of Crete. Um, you know, later in verse 12, he, he says, one of them, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. And you expect to hear Paul rebuke that writer for having been way too harsh with the people of Crete. But all Paul says is this testimony is true. I mean, that's shocking. I mean, he's, he's so broadly stereotyping this whole island of hundreds of thousands of people. And so we know it's not true of every person or else maybe he'd give up on even trying to find elders here. Who's going to find elders in an island full of liars, evil beasts and lazy gluttons? But he's pointing out, though, that that is the characterization of this island. It has a very bad reputation within the Roman Empire of being like this. And it's a well deserved reputation. And it's a reputation that he wants Titus to make sure that when he's talking to these churches, they want to overcome that reputation. As the character of the people of Crete, he wants them as Christians to know they have a lot to overcome. And so why hide it from them? Let them know this is how people view you. This is what you need to do. So like I said, 2,000 years earlier, there was this uh, amazing culture on this island. But that was a long, long time earlier. Perhaps these people still kind of in their pride rely upon that as who they are as opposed to what they've really become. There is a a Bible commentator and he had this to say about Crete. Their ferocity and fraud were widely attested. Their falsehood proverbial. The wine of Crete was famous and drunkenness prevailed. So this is just a characterization of the people of this island. So when we get into what was to be set in order, you can imagine that it has to do with the side effects of this, the, them being regarded as lazy gluttons and evil beasts. There are five things that, we, that I'll just give you a, a glimpse at now that are to be set in order. Uh, first, he mentions in chapter 1, verse 10, idle talkers and deceivers. This has to be rebuked. And so what he encourages Titus to do and to look and train the elders to do is to rebuke idle talkers and deceivers. In chapter 2 verses 1 through 10, he speaks of teaching the older men, the older women, the younger men, and the bond servants. And then it goes into a lot of detail. I won't get into, go into details now, but that's one of the things that needs to be set in order. The men need to understand their role. The women need to understand their role. The young men need to understand the role that they're moving into. And the uh, slaves, or the bondservants, the workers, need to understand that they owe their employers, their masters, due diligence. They can't just continue to cheat and lie and steal and be a glutton like they had been. In chapter 3 verses 1 through 7, to teach them good character. And what I'll summarize it as, they're to be in subjection, they're to obey, and they're to remain or be humble. The next verse affirm good works and then like i said he's mentioned it six times in this letter good works were a key for paul and even more so with these people of crete he wants them it's like uh, when the thief is instructed to go steal no more and as a matter of fact what we want you doing is giving goods away you have to learn to let go of your covetousness and your greed so that's what he's having the people of Crete do focus on the good works This will humble you, it will make you more like your Father in Heaven. And then the last one, the fifth one, is avoid unnecessary disputes and deal with the divisive people. Each of these we'll get into more detail when we cover them in the time ahead, but those I see as the five things of setting in order in addition to appointing the elders. So now, this last portion. For this reason I left you in Crete, that you should set in order the things that are lacking, and appoint elders in every city as I commanded you. Now, we are uh, presbytos, you know, presbyter, that's the term, the Greek term for elder. We also know that there is the term for overseer or bishop, episkopos. So both of these are pretty much synonymous. They're just referring to different aspects. One refers to kind of the integrity of the job itself and the other of the duties of the job. But what does it mean that Titus was to appoint elders? It sounds very dictatorial, it sounds very controlling. Like Titus would have the power to just go throughout the cities of Crete and after a brief interview with these people of the church, say, okay, you're an elder, and you're an elder, and you're an elder, and then my job here is done. He goes on to the next city, the next church, and does the same thing. That's what it gives the appearance of. But appearances can be deceiving. Uh, Phil was talking to me just before the service when I commented what I'd be talking about. And he uh, reminded me, and I know we had gone through it back with elder training 10 years ago, that the classical Greek referred to appointing as a raising of the hands from amongst the men. So in other words, it's an election. The, The elders that be, and just as we did in ours, the elders that be would tend to develop the vetting process, the nominating process. The means by which, the the gauntlet which the prospective elder has to run in order to be, be even considered to being then elected by the congregation to become an elder. What Paul is giving a very, very short introduction to is a process. It's not that Titus or Paul or others would just go in and make this all happen. It's all about raising up leaders from within the church. And the whole letter is oriented that way. And so it would seem odd that the whole letter is oriented towards raising up leadership when, in effect, you're just going to step in there and control everything and move people around like uh, players on a checkerboard or something. So that's not it. The same th- term, though, a point is also used in Acts 14.23. But another key verse related to this is just a couple pages back in First Timothy. And let me read at First Timothy uh, three. Verse 1. This is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. And then uh, Paul again goes into with Timothy the the, uh, requirements that a man must have to be an elder. But here it emphasizes the man having a desire to be in that role. Now again, though, you can see this as a negative thing well of course he wants to that's where all the power is he just wants to go there so he can lord it over everybody else and there is an aspect of desire there that's a very strong word that person must want it. they want to be an elder and that wanting is cautioned against you know let not all be teachers because you're going to be held to a higher judgment in in the judgment and so what is being referred to however that desire is what we've come to call the call is do you feel the call of the Lord when we meet as elders with the CPC and we're talking about uh, potentially bringing a new elder into our midst you ask about the call when did you feel that God was calling you to become an elder because as an elder you're not going to be a ruler you're going to be a servant you're a servant of all as an elder. and so if you are mistaken in your perception as to what it means to be an elder and you just think you're going to move into this powerful role which many churches have corrupted the role of elder to make it that but yet people are to want to serve and let me give you i, I found this to be a great uh, overview of what it means to want to be an elder this is that ambition that is referred to in first timothy 3:1. it's in three parts It is an ambition that seeks only the glory of God and the well-being of others. It is an ambition that seeks not position, praise, prestige or popularity, but service to God and ministry to men. It's an ambition that has at its center three important E's defining the purpose of the church, exaltation of God, edification of the body of Christ and evangelization of the lost. So that is what it means to desire to be an elder. That is what it means to become an elder. It's about being a servant leader. You happen to be in the position of leadership, but you're also serving from that position. Now, it's true, though, that none of us do this perfectly. And so at times we can fall into making mistakes like any person can, and we can begin. And that's why, oh, when you read some of the Old Testament prophets and they're rebuking the leaders of israel it's for that very reason that they had begun to take that power unto themselves and abuse their authority as the leaders of israel but they too were to be elders like elders are in the new testament era now now i have to get to the big question here though paul has given titus two assignments he's to set things right that are not yet right And he's to appoint elders in every city. Now, he says city, not church. And so it would have seemed then that it's like there are just a set of cities that have churches in them. And he's to go appoint elders in each of those cities. How long did it take? How long did Paul expect it to take? How long did it take? Let me read you something from 1 Timothy 5, starting at verse 17 let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor especially those who labor in the word and doctrine for the scripture says you shall not muzzle an ox while it treads out the grain and the labor, laborer is worthy of his wages do not receive an accusation against an elder except from two or three witnesses those who are sinning rebuke in the presence of all that the rest also may fear i charge you before god and the lord jesus christ and the elect angels that you observe these things without prejudice, doing nothing with partiality. Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Now, we in our culture have this phrase, laying hands on someone. You know, it's like getting in a fight. That's not what they're referring to here. This is actually the laying on of hands. The elders come together when you have a newly minted elder and that's a part of the ordination process. They lay hands on this man. And so this is uh, symbolically through time, God laying his hands upon this man and drawing him into the ministry. It's the ordination process. So do not lay hands on a man hastily is what he tells Timothy. So what is hastily? How hastily is hastily. And then two, what does the second part of that mean? (coughs) Do not lay hands on anyone hastily, nor share in other people's sins. Keep yourself pure. Now, it has to do with the ordination process. It has to do with bringing leaders into the church. What is it that he's warning him against? I believe, in part, he's warning him against being deceived. Don't just trust that a man is the character that others are saying he is. Determine that that's true. Don't be fooled. Don't let them lie to you. You have to dig into these people's lives. Are they telling you the truth? Are they hiding things that ought not be hidden? Nor share in other people's sins. So in other words, even unknowingly, Timothy, if he were to lay hands on a man hastily, could bring a man into the eldership that ought not be there. And that has been done more times than you'd want to admit. But yet, by the time it's been done, it's kind of too late. Now you've got a person's honor wrapped up in this, their their reputation wrapped up in this. And if they ought not to have been an elder, there was some mistake in the process. There was some mistake. Now, it's true that perhaps their character has changed, too. Maybe they were behaving well five, ten years ago when they became an elder, and now they've become abusive of the authority that they have. But, like a Saul, you know, who was apparently, at the start, seemed to be a good king. Everybody thought so. God knew better. God knew the hard times were coming. So, how long, though, did Titus have to help in the process of getting elders built into all these churches in Crete. How soon is too soon? How long is too long? We, in the presbytery just discussed this very briefly when we were down in Tennessee, because we have one church in our denomination that has grown, still has a single elder though, and he admitted, yep, 10 years, because we had a word in our wording called temporary, that we were to temporarily augment the sessions of single older churches. And so one man said, well, how temporary is temporary? Ten years seems like it's not temporary anymore. And so we struck the word temporary from our wording. We solved that problem. Okay. We all admitted that temporary was not temporary, and it was probably the wrong word to use. But the question I ask, though, is how short is too short? How long is too long? How do you determine the answer to these questions? Well, you have to let the Bible guide you here. Now, there are ways, let's get to the answer the Bible gives us though, and then let's talk about whether that answer applies in our time. Now, how long did Titus take to perform what Paul commanded? I don't think we can be sure, but we can know something. When Paul wrote to Timothy, the letter of 2 Timothy, he was very lonely. And let me read to you why he was very lonely. In chapter 4, verses 9 through 12, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. So, he is here, perhaps in Nicopolis, and he has only Luke, or I'm sorry, he's here in Rome as a prisoner. It, he had been in Nicopolis, but now he's been imprisoned again, but yet only Luke is with him. And he talks about people as having abandoned him throughout Asia because of this most recent arrest. But Titus is in Dalmatia. Now, Dalmatia, I don't think is where Dalmatian dogs come from. I could be wrong. But Dalmatia is what is now way up on the northern, like in Kosovo, up along the uh, Adriatic Sea between Italy and Greece is down here. But then you go up here through like Albania and Kosovo and up into this area, he's way up north there. Crete is way down here between Greece and Turkey. So Titus has been sent to Dalmatia for some reason. I don't know why, but we know that it's been two or three years from the time that Titus was written. But so we know, though, that Titus has left Crete. He's way, way off. The question, though, is did he finish his work in Crete before he was sent away? Even in the letter of Titus, it says this at the tail end in verse 12 When I send Artemis to you, or Tychicus, be diligent to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Was Paul expecting Titus to be done by that time to where, when he went to visit him in Decapolis a few months later, he was supposed to be done. I don't, I don't know. We don't know the answers to these questions. So we don't know exactly whether Titus completed his work, but it would appear that Paul expected him to complete his work because that was the twofold command. He was following orders. Set things straight, appoint elders in all the cities. So I would say that he went to Dalmatia, most likely under Paul's orders again later, sometime two to three years later, and he would have had to have been done on Crete with what his job was to do. I believe we have fallen into the trap nowadays of pursuing perhaps some perfectionism when it comes to selecting elders. Certainly we don't wanna make mistakes. We've seen mistakes. That we don't like living with the mistakes that have been made. We don't want to make more. But we are not God. We can't be perfect. And so the longer we wait, it seems like the more we are wishing to be like God, such that we won't make this mistake. But are we then disobeying God's word? There are reasons, I think, that we could say, okay, well, this was a very unusual case. What Paul expected of Titus was reasonable only given the conditions that he was facing. And I think that's reasonable to consider. But I still think that biblically, though, when you see an answer to something like this that you think is probably right, where he had two to three years to establish elders in all these churches, we ought to take it seriously. We ought not wink at it. We ought to say, okay, is this what God would have us to do in our time as well? Now, with that, I want to kind of summarize what we've covered and then introduce next week a little bit so first it's my assumption that Titus did complete the work Paul had given him to do before he completed I think his trip to Nicopolis was different that was just a let's get together take stock of everything or have we dispatched the forces correctly that type of thing maybe a change came about from that but I doubt it so he probably finished it within two to three years So we've started our journey. We're looking at this book of Titus. We've talked about the orders that he has been given from Paul. We've witnessed him receiving these orders and begin to exercise them. He's setting things in order, appointing elders. And so next time, we go into that portion that describes the process of getting elders set up in these churches. Who are these men supposed to be? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And we ask you, Lord, to give us wisdom in understanding it and applying it to our situation. Uh, You gave us the Bible for that purpose. And so we pray for insight, for wisdom, for guidance. We pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would guide us in making wise uh, decisions. Uh, When is it appropriate to deviate from what the Bible says? Uh, There are times... And so, Lord, please give wisdom, especially, we ask, within our presbytery as we uh, want to see it growing. We want to see it solid and remaining uh, oriented towards you and towards that which it was created for. And so we pray, Father, for wisdom and guidance. Please have your Holy Spirit to teach us from your word and guide us by your power. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.